Today we'll be in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. <clears throat> we finally move past the introduction to the Gospel of John, really the preamble or um, the, the prologue to the book of John, uh, which talked all about the person of Christ, all about who he has always been, who he will always be, the fact that through all things created through him, there was not a single thing made that was made without him, that he is the center of light and life, and that outside of him there's neither of those things. It's a pretty remarkable series of verses, and we walk through all 18 verses of that. Today we pick up the first of the narration. We actually get the story now. And this is something that I want you to keep in your mind, in the back of your mind. Every time you come to the Gospel of John, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John is to speak to you, the reader, and to me, the reader. The whole point is to convince you that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, that you believe on him, and that by believing on him, you will have life in his name. He argues that this is the very point. He says it point blank in John chapter 20, verse 31. If you're curious, you can go and look that up. He argues this. He says, look, I'm not writing this as a mere collection of teachings about Jesus that kind of lead to you theorizing about who he might be or what the purpose is. No, that's one of the things I love about John. He always sits down and says, by the way, this is why I am writing to you. This is the purpose for why I'm giving this to you. You're meant to interact with the text, and you're meant to have the text interact with you. And so he will give examples, people that are skeptics. The two main skeptics of the book of John, before we even get into the narration, are Nicodemus and Thomas. And then as we go through all of this, every time we see a miracle of Christ, it's there for a reason. It's there for a purpose to teach you something about the nature of salvation, something about the blessing and the glory of God. From the wedding of the Canaan of Galilee all the way to the raising of Lazarus, these things teach us aspects of the gospel of Christ so that we know that by believing, we too may have life in his name. It is a remarkable book. And here at the outset of the narration, I just want to say I am thoroughly excited to walk through the Gospel of John, perhaps one of the hardest books to preach through and one of the hardest ones to, uh, to keep focus on, but is worth the struggle like most hard things. It's worth doing well. And so we intend to do that. With that, we will get started today in verse 19. Let's stand in honor of God and his word as we read this marvelous passage, verse 19 through 28. We start then with the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, fine, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them and says, I baptize with water, 
But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you inspired the pen of John so many years ago, that you preserved your scriptures throughout all of this history, that you have preserved it not in a means that we may wonder at its meaning, but that we may know exactly what its meaning is. We thank you that your word is clear, that its teaching is sound. We thank you, Father, that what it says we are to hold to. We thank you that when it addresses issues, it has authority to do so. We pray, Father, it's the same for all days, that you teach us to live on those things that have come from your mouth. We thank you for these verses in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Boy, it's getting warm in here fast. John chapter 1 is one of the greatest chapters that there is. The prologue itself is perhaps one of the most complicated and intentionally written sections of all of Scripture. It's truly astounding. Really, the opening of the book of Hebrews is probably the only one that comes close to its level of complexity. Uh, When John sat down to write this, I imagine a great deal of work went into the first 18 verses. It is simply overwhelming. Most of us kind of have this idea that scripture writing took place just like on a whim. They're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write the Gospel of John today. And he just sits down and writes the whole thing. No, no, no. As we even see, we have a bit of the method in which pulled back for us in the Gospel of Luke, where he says he goes out and he conducted interviews and research and everything. Luke kind of showed us his entire hand at this. It is apparent that the way John wrote this book, that he was meticulous and he was intentional. And when he uses certain words in place where a normal different word would have been placed, there's some reason to stop and take notice. It is a remarkable series of verses, an incredible teaching, and the Gospel of John bears that out from here forward. The same level of meticulousness that came to the prologue of the first 18 verses here continues in the narration, but in expanded format. So if we want to understand that Jesus of Nazareth was and is God and always has been God and created all things, it shouldn't surprise us that he raises Lazarus from the dead. All miracles, in essence, are a form of creation. Think about that for a second. When he heals a blind man, what is he doing but recreating the eyes? Retraining the brain and the oculus nerves. When he, when he heals a paralyzed man, he's not just restoring feeling, but balance, muscles that have atrophied, bones so they can hold up this, the, uh, the weight of the person. Everything in that person had to be made new in order to bring this about. Here we have instances of the gospel. And we are shown in the gospel that we are not merely those who are blind, though we are, and God gives us eyes to see. We are not merely those who are deaf, though we are, and God gives us ears to hear. We're not merely paralyzed and cannot do good works outside of God's working and motivations in us. We are dead. 
And this is what all of these miracles, all of the narration of the Gospel of John will show us bit by bit. It will tear away every hope and every reliance that we have in ourselves and instead say, believe on Christ and you will have real life. And here it sets it out. It depends not on simply the testimony of what Jesus said about himself, though that would be sufficient. But it introduces us to the fact that these things, one, did not happen in a vacuum, and two, they happened in accordance with the scriptures already given. By two or three witnesses, every claim should be established, and, well, Christ offers much more than that. The first of which is today's, the testimony, the witness of John the Baptist. You want to know who Jesus of Nazareth is? The first place you should go is not his mother, it's not the Magi, it's not the shepherds. It's John the Baptist. Why? Because as we'll see, John the Baptist got to behold one of the most unique moments in all of salvific history. With the five senses, he was able to actually interact with the entirety of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism. That is insanely rare. That almost never happens. And to hear the voice of the Father call out while watching the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove land on the man that he's putting his hands on to baptize, who is the Son of God, to interact with the whole Godhead, to baptize Christ in the Jordan, the same place where the people of Israel crossed the Jordan in the conquest of Canaan, the same place where Elijah and Elisha crossed over for Elijah to go to heaven and Elisha to come and cross over again. In that same place, John is standing there baptizing Christ. None of this is by accident. All of it is intentional to say God has been at work to save his people since before you existed, your fathers existed, your father's fathers existed. He is the God who always is. As we discussed last week, I am who I am. The God who always is, always has been, and always will be is saving his people and there's nothing anyone can do about it. No matter if Herod comes and chops off John the Baptist's heads, no matter if Pilate turns Jesus over to be executed, it does not matter what the mind of man plans, the Lord directs the hearts and his salvation will win out. My friends, for Christians, that is a marvelous sense of hope. For as the wicked plan their ways, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. He holds them in derision. And guess what? For the God who sees all things beginning to end, the wiles of the evil that thinks it can take over this world is just a foolish little mouse bouncing around in a maze. And God sees that his day is coming. Do not, therefore, fret yourself about evildoers. This is all sitting in the background of the person reading the Gospel of John. This should all sit in the back of minds that are present in this room. And so John says, this is the testimony of John. Let's hear the first testimony. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who he was. Who are you? You're coming out doing things thoroughly different than anything else that's ever happened here before. You're wearing strange clothes. 
You've got, you've got camel's hair and a leather belt. You eat locusts and wild honey. One of those sounds delicious. The other one, not so much. Locust is a real good delicacy. I don't like honey. You're a bizarre person, a strange thing, an apparition. You baptize, which was not a normal thing in Jewish tradition. There were rites of purification, water washings, and things like this. But as far as for baptisms under repentance, where he calls out to Jewish people and say, it's not enough that you are children of Abraham. That will not afford you salvation. It's not ethnicity. It's not background. You must repent and turn to God. And even that baptism was prefiguring something greater that was to come. And so everyone was confused. And so the chief priests and the Levites sent out their representatives, their disciples. They wanted to know who he was because several people had come doing unusual things, claiming to be the Christ. And that's the first thing that John says, I'm not the Christ. Just, just in case you think I'm claiming this, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who was promised to come into the world. I am not the anointed one. And so then they asked him, verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? That's a remarkable question. Why ask that? Well, the prophet Malachi had promised that there would be, before the coming of Messiah, Elijah would come into the world. And so they're asking specifically, are you Elijah? And what does he answer back? Something very confusing to us. He says no. Which is interesting, because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, John the Baptist was Elijah. So what do we do with that? John did not fully understand his role yet. Now, he was right in one sense. He's not physically and literally Elijah. But he is the Elijah that Malachi had prophesied. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew. This is Elijah who is to come into the world. He dresses like him. He baptizes. He crosses the river of Jordan, the same place. He's in the wilderness. He carries out a lot of the same stuff before the ministry of Elisha was to take over. And so Malachi had prophesied this. John the Baptist answers it more literally. I'm not literally Elijah. I'm John. And so... The people who were sent from the chief priests and the Levites ask him then the ultimate question. Are you capitalized the prophet? Now what in the world does that mean? <coughs> are you the prophet? I hope most of us are familiar with the fact that Moses promised something in the book of Deuteronomy to the people of Israel. One day God will raise up from among you a prophet greater than me. A prophet greater than Moses. Now in their concept of the future, that was possibly distinct from the Messiah. People had all sorts of theories about how the Messiah was going to come into the world. Is the prophet different than that? Is he a forerunner? Why is Elijah back in other than the fact that Elijah didn't die, which is a really, really unique instance in the Old Testament? How is it that we work through all this? And just like we have theories about how God will work the second coming of Christ, they had a lot of theories about how the first coming of Christ was going to, going to span out. And so he answers, no, I'm not the prophet either. 
Which is actually the same answer as, are you the Christ? This is what we find out. And so they said to him, okay, then who are you? Who are you that you have the right to do this? Who are you? We need to have an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And so then he quotes from the book of Isaiah. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said. Put put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes for just a moment. Actually, I don't even think he wore shoes. Put yourself in his camel hair cloak for a second. And interact with this for a minute. When you read the book of Isaiah, it prophesies about you personally 700 years before you were born. What does that do to your sense of weight of responsibility? What does that do to your concept of the importance of what God is doing? Of the salvation that was being worked in the world around them? that he was laying the foundation work for not just the prophet, not just the Messiah, but the Lord. You are paving the way for the Lord to walk amongst his people. That is an incredible statement. That is an incredible thing to connect to oneself. John the Baptist was not connecting this to himself. God told his parents through the angel Gabriel, that is exactly what I'm sending him to do in the spirit and way of Elijah. Why the pictures like this? Why the one who sets the way for the Lord? Why is it the one, first of all, why crying in the wilderness? And why making straight or making level the path for the Lord? This is one of the remarkable things about how the Lord works with his people. He does not show them all of his glory all at once, lest we should die. He sends it through mediators. He sends it through pictures and ways and means. He sends it through his word. Not a one of us could stand to look at God with this corruptible flesh and survive. Not one of us. And so there is a veil that sits over the revelation of God. There is a a distance at which we are held, especially here in the Old Covenant. Here again, we're on the other side of the cross in this story, and so we have a different way that God is interacting with his people. The Spirit of God at that time was localized in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Today, the Spirit of God is localized in the body of Christ, namely all Christians throughout the world. There's a completely different mode, and yet still the same. It's why we call the church the body of Christ, because that is where the Spirit of God resides, in the temple of his body. And here at this time, John the Baptist rises up and says, lest you should understand something wrong, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Just as the prophet Isaiah had said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him then, basically, to paraphrase, what gives you the right to do what you're doing then? They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them and says, if you think that's bad, wait till you see what's coming next. I just baptized with water. 
This is a small aspect of what's coming. I baptize with water. Let me divert your attention to what your real questions are. There stands one among you right now. Now, the language is irrefutable. Jesus was standing in the crowd and nobody recognized him. There is one standing here on the banks of the Jordan right now. Even him who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Among you stands one who is more worthy than I. And it's not like we're both on the scales and he just outweighs me. We are on the scales. I am kicked off the scales. He is the scales. I'm not worthy to be even on the scales. His sandal I cannot untie. And yet, several weeks before, now if you want to get the narration placement, this is after the wilderness temptations of Jesus. Jesus had been baptized, he was driven immediately to the wilderness, and he came back to the wilderness. Now, conjecture at this point on mine, but I think with good reason. Jesus has just returned from the wilderness, and he's crossing the Jordan back into Judea. That's my conjecture. I want to explain that directly. Scripture doesn't say that, but man, does that match every single thing that John the Baptist here is saying. What he is expressing is that there's one standing right here on the banks, right among this crowd in front of me, and you'll see in the next passage, I baptize them, I witness the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. He walks through the whole thing, and he tells it all in retroflex. The reality is that Jesus of Nazareth was standing there in the crowd and John says, you're asking me about me. Wrong question. I'm just the one preparing the road. I'm just the guy painting the lines on the road before the president comes through. Don't ask about me. I'm not important. There's one standing among you. You think I'm important? I can't even touch his feet. A thing that was reserved for the meanest of slaves I am not allowed, not worthy, not capable of even untying his sandal. In fact, if you remember the way that Matthew talked about the the baptism of Christ, what does he say? I have need to be baptized by you. Yet you come to me for baptism? How is that supposed to work out? How, How can I, as a mere human, baptize you, not a mere human, How does this work that you would come to me for this? I have need of baptizing by you. And what does Jesus answer him? Who who remembers that? Ultimate Bible trivia. Who remembers Jesus' response to John the Baptist? Let it be so for now to fulfill all righteousness. Make an exception. Yes, I do not have anything to repent of. Still the law must be fulfilled. Yes, I do not have need of ceremonial washings. Let the law be fulfilled. Yes, I have not need of this, but the picture is here. And as the ultimate human, the picture of repentance and cleansing from sin must simply be. It doesn't harm a clean dish to wash it again. 
And it fulfills a picture of righteousness and a fulfillment of these things. And what John is expressing is, look, the person that I baptized several weeks ago is back in this crowd again. And let me tell you this. He is worthy. He is worthy, not I. In another passage, John the Baptist says about him, he must increase, I must decrease. And we see the first instance of somebody who is in league with Jesus of Nazareth. What attitude will the people who follow Christ have? But that attitude. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. Why is it we have this statement in verse 28 that these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing? Let let me tell you a little bit about this place. Now, I have seen this place with my own eyes. Uh, I have been there right where the Jordan River meets up with the Dead Sea. It's a remarkable place. It doesn't look like much. But at the time that it's there, it held great memory for the people of Israel. John was not baptizing here on the far side of the River Jordan just for kicks and goes, well, it's some water. Why not? No, very intentional. Very intentional. The first time that people had been baptized there, and when I say baptized, I mean in the story that they crossed the Jordan River and built an altar in the center of the river as the waters held back, and the whole host of Israel crossed over and went and surrounded the city of Jericho. That is in the same place. What is the picture there? Moses had come before, but Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. It was at that river that a transition took place into the leadership of Joshua. He was to go in and do something that Moses' role was not to fulfill. Same thing. Same thing centuries later, after the people had come into the land and the judges had ruled and the kings had come into the land. Prophets, the first prophets, the early prophets, the ones who didn't write but only spoke, that's Elijah, crosses all of Judea into the land that we're discussing here and comes to the River Jordan with Elisha in tow and takes his cloak, hits the water, and what happens? The Jordan River parts in the same way that the Red Sea did, in the same way that the Jordan River did for the people of Israel crossing for the conquest of Canaan. Same place. They cross over. They go to the top of the hill. What happens? Elijah leaves on a fiery chariot. Another one of those movies I want to watch in heaven. (laughs) And Elisha catches his cloak, goes back down the mountain, comes to the Jordan River, hits it in the same place. And what happens? It parts again. He crosses over and completes exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah did, because what did he ask for? But a double portion of the spirit that was given to Elijah. Same place. 900 years later, John the Baptist is baptizing right there. Come down into the water and have your sins washed away. The picture of baptism, even the crossing of the Red Sea, is described as all of Israel being baptized. This is not a new picture. It is an old picture of God's salvation that is beyond the natural order. Well beyond it. This is no rules for living better. 
This is, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You need new work in you. You need sins washed away. You need repentance. You need grace. And you need the Spirit of God. And guess what? You can't earn any of that. And so what happens is, as they come down into this water, what happens is Jesus is baptized, fulfilling the picture of this, and literally the man fulfilling the prophecy of Elijah is the one baptizing him and handing him the same ministry, the same way that Elijah handed it to Elisha at the same place, the same way that Moses handed it to Joshua, the same time, same place. And here John the Baptist realizes the picture. It's time for me to decrease. And you're asking me who I am. You want to know if I'm the Messiah. You want to know if I'm the prophet. You want to know if I'm Elijah. Stop asking. You're asking the wrong questions. If you're coming out to follow me, don't. Don't bother. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. I'm just the one out here pointing you to Christ. Don't follow me for the sake of me. Only walk the road that I'm paving. It is a remarkable turn that he references to the reality that he is only given the responsibility of paving the way for the Lord, but for the foot that stands in the sandal that will walk on that way, he says, I can't even touch the shoe. This is the attitude of somebody following the Lord. We will extend glory only to him. We will extend attention only to him. We will not put ourselves on a pedestal. We will not declare that we have come so far and therefore you should emulate me. No, we say the same thing as the Apostle Paul. Follow me only in so far as I follow Christ. Use me as an example for what I do good. And when I do something wrong, use me as a warning. And every Christian ought to have this, every church ought to have this as their goal. That we will glorify Christ and not ourselves. We will lift him up and not us. That hurts sometimes. And John the Baptist knows this because that faithfulness led him to being executed. And this is the humility of those who follow Christ. We are to see Christ high and lifted up, no matter what it costs us. We are to learn from our brothers and sisters from years past who have met their end for the witness of Christ and say, why too have the same witness that he saved me and there was nothing good that I had to offer and yet he still came and was gracious to me. And he is Lord of heaven and earth, maker of all things visible and invisible. And there is nothing that I can do to undo his work. And there is no threat, no death, no suffering or torture that will make me recant such things. This is the God that we serve. And when John the Baptist is talking about it, he is not under any misgivings. He is talking to the Sanhedrin representatives of Israel. Don't look at me. 
The only reason I exist and the only reason I'm doing any of this is because of the one you should be asking about and he's standing in your crowd and you don't even recognize him. How easy is it for us to miss this? How easy is it for us to intend that the way that things work is the way that they work, or even our theories about these things. Their questions themselves are inconsistent with what we learned about Christ to come. The Christ and the prophet were the same person. But they were very confused about this because here's the thing. God wasn't making it clear to them. God was sending them somebody who was dressed in camel hair and wearing a leather belt and eating locusts and stuff. It's a weird man. He looks just like Elijah, by the way. Same same stuff, same wilderness, same mode of dress. Elijah ate better things. But the same picture carries out. God did not send somebody who was a king. God sent somebody who looked like a homeless man that it might reveal the hearts of those who were asking the questions. God sent somebody who broke all sorts of norms and yet kept the law of God still. It's perfectly legal to eat locusts and wild honey. It's just weird. And so John the Baptist is calling them to what everyone who follows the Lord knows that they need, repentance. And if you truly are the people of God, you will repent of your sins and you will follow Christ. For the old covenant, before Christ was fully revealed, you will repent from your sins and you will trust in the Lord with all your heart. The call has always been the same. And John is interacting with this group of people saying, this is the wrong series of questions. You're so enamored with who I am and why I'm doing these and what what business I have doing of these things. There's a different person you need to be enamored with because if you think I'm surprising, just you wait. God is going to bring his salvation in a way you do not expect and he's going to look very different than you would intend Because guess what? When Jesus of Nazareth is walking around Galilee, he doesn't look unique. He looks like every other person in Galilee. He speaks with the same slang they speak with. He speaks with the same accent, which is largely considered the low country, if you know what I mean, accents. He speaks... Normal. He looks normal. He's not walking around with a halo and a glowing aura around him. He just looks like one of us. Here's the thing. This was the biggest surprise of all. He was one of us. And this is what John has been telling us. Look, don't mistake. When God the Son actually came to this world, he did not come in the full glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He came veiled in his flesh. The Word became flesh. We just read it five verses before this passage. The Word became flesh and we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. And yet, to look into the face of Jesus of Nazareth looks just like every other human. You line them up, you can't pick them out. And John the Baptist says, so much will this be surprising that he's literally standing in the crowd that's addressing me, and you haven't ever noticed him. 
How surprising would that piece of information have been? God's salvation himself, literally what the word Jesus means, God's salvation himself is standing in your midst and you haven't seen him yet. So what should their response have been? Can you point him out, maybe? Can we, can we see him that we may recognize him? No. They leave. They were sent with one question. We just want to know who John the Baptist is. And they didn't receive a sufficient answer. They received no, 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 and there's somebody else that's more important. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm the one that's decreasing, and you're infatuated with my decrease. There's one who's increasing, and you haven't even recognized him. You're asking the wrong questions. It is the very next day that Jesus comes down to the shores of the water again, and John cries out that wonderful phrase that most of us know about him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We become so accustomed to the testimony of John the Baptist that we do not realize how transitory it was. It took us from expecting the fulfillment of salvation for Israel into a completely different realm. That we would see somebody who Jesus himself said regarding John the Baptist, there is no one greater born among women than John the Baptist. And still, though, in the kingdom of heaven, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What a series of claims. Because if what is real about John the Baptist is that, especially in the Old Covenant, nobody was greater. Nobody had a more privileged job than to simply, let's use it in modern terms, pave the road for Jesus. If nobody is greater than that, and then to turn it on its head, Jesus says, but in the kingdom of heaven, the least person in the kingdom of heaven, and I'm relatively certain I'm pretty close to the bottom there, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Folks, do you know how severe the promises of salvation are in Christ? Do you know how deeply they have affected us? Do you know how far they extend and how grand they are and how eternal they last and how deep they transform and how long they will be? And to realize that it's not just about your salvation and my salvation, it is an interconnected community of faith where we with one voice declare that we will follow Christ no matter And it's not just this local assembly, it's the world. And it's not just in this time frame, it's thank God for his mercy, these 2,000 years of the church. And I pray that the number increase so much more that Christ tarries for another 2,000 years. That the number may become more and more and more and more. And the same attitude that the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, I will suffer anything if it means the salvation of my brothers and sisters, that they may find a true and real salvation too. These who are our brothers and sisters that have yet to find salvation, 
My friends, we suffer in the meantime so that they will come to salvation. I came to salvation in 1994. How many of you were Christians before that? Thank you for your patient suffering so that I could find salvation too. Thank you for bearing in this world long enough so that I could find salvation. We will bear this because there are people who need Christ. How many of you have now come to salvation in Christ? I'm going to not ask for a raise hand. I'm assuming it's all of you. If it's not, and if there's somebody here or somebody listening that has not come to salvation in Christ, we will suffer anything until you do. And my friends, every time you come into sufferings in your life, count it the grace of God, I beg of you. That you may consider worthy to suffer for his name, just as he did for you and I, while we await that day. Do you know how I know that there's people that have not come to salvation yet? That certainly will. It is because we are not there yet. Stay the course. Endure whatever. Because I tell you this, the moment we lose is the moment we give up. Faith and salvation is not an instance in our lives that we just look back on. Faith is an enduring run. And I see it as my job towards myself to ensure that I run that race well and I finish the laps that are given for me. And I pray the same for every single one of you. Some laps, some years are much harder than other ones. But all together they make up a suffering of the body of Christ, the completion of which is ours to bear. John the Baptist knew this. Don't look at me. Don't ask who I am. Don't overthink who I am and what my role is and all these things. There's someone else far more important. And I pray that that is the tone in which we serve Christ. I pray that that's how we evangelize people. We don't go up to them and say, hey, your life doesn't look like mine. You, you, you should look like mine. Here's, here's the rules I use for my life. I'm going to hold you to these. No. We come up and we declare to them, but for the grace of God, I too would be in miserable condition. There's nothing good in my hands, not today, not then, not ever. I come to the cross of Christ the same way I am begging you to. Come to him and be saved. You want to know a life that never ends? You want to know the reason why light and darkness keep fighting? You want to know why life and death keep running into each other? Let me introduce you to the person who in dying brought life. Let me introduce you to the person who looked at darkness and brought light. 
Let me introduce you to the person that through him, every single thing that was became. He created the world. It is through him that salvation comes because there is life in no other name. Pray for these things. Make up your mind that no matter what happens, that is the claim that we bear. Christ first, second, third, and always. No matter what it costs us and no matter the suffering it brings. My friends, there are times for rejoicing. And there are times for sorrow. And both of them will alight our paths. One year, everything will seem up, and another year, everything will seem down. And as churches experience the same types of things, when we're opening a new building, and when we're continuing on, these things seem to be a good thing. They can bring in their own types of sufferings. I'm just going to encourage us, do not let things distract you from Christ, no matter how good they are. Let us glory in him. Let us glory in him alone. That we may serve our king and carry on and keep in step with the spirit of God and serve one another out of gentle and kind hearts. I pray that this is reality for all of us this week, this month, and this year. And my friends, I know that there are sufferings going on in different lives around this room. On behalf of Christians yet saved, thank you. We are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It is our privilege to suffer for his name. Let's behave like that. Let's look like that. And let's pull our gaze to Christ and away from ourselves. Here's what the word says. You want to talk about he must increase and I must decrease. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that in these sufferings, they are not worthy to be compared to the glory of Christ. Not that when they get on the scales, the glory of God outweighs them. No, they don't even belong on the scales. That is not to diminish our sufferings, That is not to diminish the role of John the Baptist or you or I. That is to raise the glory of God in our mind to a place inconceivable. That we may worship him as he reveals himself to be high and lifted up. And holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And may his people in one voice call this out in the means of their lives in the day-to-day. Let's pray for that end. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. It brings to us challenge, and it brings to us clarity. And in days where sometimes we receive neither, we thank you that your word will outlast all of us, that your word will outlast all of the evil of our generation, and that your word will outlast this country, this continent, this earth, and even the heavens itself. Our Father, we pray that as we join in this eternal word, 
that our hearts are lifted up to worship you and you alone. In your Son's name and for his sake and your glorious kingdom. Amen.